Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 62 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Our big Bible question of the day is, what does the Bible teach about money? And we're going to cover the top 10 Bible verses on money and wealth. So happy Monday, everybody. Today's Bible passages include Exodus 13, the aftermath of the Passover, Job 31, a fascinating and powerful meditation on holiness for worshipers of Yahweh, God, 2 Corinthians 1, the comfort of Christ to those who are suffering, and Luke 16, which is our focus passage of the day. In that passage, Jesus is focused on issues related to money, possessions, wealth, etc., and he gives what is probably the most difficult to understand parable of Jesus, the parable of the dishonest manager. Is Jesus praising a manager who behaves dishonestly and unethically in this passage? It's very confusing and it's caused some raised eyebrows in our family devotional reading for tonight. But let's go to Dr. Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke for his take on the parable. Luke 16, 1-8 contains probably the most difficult parable in Luke chapter 1. It clearly teaches about the use of money and the responsibility attached to its presence. But how precisely is that point made? Two options, says Dr. Box, stand out. Number one, the manager was dishonest in reducing the bills of the master's creditors, but he was thinking ahead, so Jesus commends his crafty, forward-looking use of resources. Or the other option is, the manager may have been dishonest earlier, but in reducing the bills, he is simply cutting out some of his own hefty commission in hopes of goodwill later. If so, Jesus commends him for his creative use of foresight that provides for his care later. The choice between the options, says Bach, is one of those cases where the interpretive decision is difficult. Either option can be correct. Jesus may be using a negative example of an unethical action to make the point about the use of resources in a negative way. But I prefer the option that argues the manager acted with foresight in this situation by cutting himself out of the bill short term, in other words, cutting his commission, so that people he knows will have compassion on him later. Thus, Jesus' point is not built on an example of dishonesty or cheating. It illustrates precisely Jesus' point, namely to use the resources God gives us wisely and generously. Now, Dr. Bach may very well be correct here, but I believe the major point that Jesus is making is not, hey, you should be dishonest like the dishonest manager. Rather, it would appear that the major point he's pointing us towards is that we should use our money for something other than buying super nice things and constantly treating ourselves, etc. But instead, we should use our money that on things that can make an eternal difference, like making friends, building relationships, and taking care of people. Possessions aren't permanent, but people are. Friendship is. That sort of an investment is is an internal investment because it will pay dividends, so to speak, in the eternal kingdom of heaven, but buying mansions and expensive cars and the best sneakers you can possibly afford and the most elite designer clothing or whatever, it's not going to make a jot of difference in the kingdom of heaven. 
This seems to agree with another powerful teaching of Jesus, which we see in Matthew chapter 6, 19-21, where he says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, says Jesus, there your heart will be also. So let's talk about money. It's one of those areas where people have pretty strong opinions and they hold pretty tightly to those opinions. I'll go ahead and say it again. I believe that followers of Jesus are under the authority of the Word of God. I've said it before on the podcast and hopefully I'll keep saying it. One of the two or three most fundamental questions of Christianity is this. Must you obey what God says to you through his word, everything he says to you? If the answer to that question is yes, absolutely, we obey all that the word of God commands us to do, then I believe that to be one of the distinguishing marks of being a disciple, a saved follower of Jesus. If your answer to that question is something other than an unequivocal yes, then it is likely that you aren't following Jesus as Lord, but you merely regard him as a good teacher or something along those lines. Here's the thing, and this will challenge you a little bit, at least I hope it does. When we pick and choose our theology, rejecting some of the New Testament commands of the Bible is maybe they're dated or maybe they're not applicable to us or something like that. When we pick and choose what we follow, then we are Lord. We decide what we want to follow or not. We are the ultimate authority, not the Word of God. The trouble with us being Lord is that we can't save ourselves. So how we obey the New Testament commands about money and how we handle the New Testament teachings about money says a lot about who our Lord is. I say all of that because what the Bible teaches about money is usually not compatible with the, quote, American dream. The Bible is consistently against the pursuit of wealth when that wealth is to be spent on oneself. The Bible consistently warns against the heart-changing dangers of wealth also. I don't believe it's a sin to be rich, and I praise God and am eternally grateful for the kingdom-minded giving people that I know who have skill at earning money, but yet pursue the kingdom of God. They are a blessing to me personally. They are a blessing to the churches I've been a part of, and I rejoice with them. Being well off isn't a sin. Go look at 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19, or hang on, we're going to read it in a minute, and think about Joseph of Arimathea, Zacchaeus, etc. These are Christians in the New Testament who had money. But here's the thing. It is a sin to be self-centered and to spend your life in the pursuit of mammon or worldly wealth rather than the pursuit of the kingdom of God. Go read the book of James and read his strong, stern, stark warnings to the wealthy. They will push you a little bit. As Jesus warns us here in Luke 16, we can't pursue both kingdoms equally. We can't pursue wealth and God's kingdom at the same time. We can pursue one or the other, but not both. So let's read the passage, see what he has to say, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about the Bible's teaching on money. And I'll give you top 10 Bible passages on money. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. 
Now Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write fifty. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of sweet, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write eighty. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. To the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And he told them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of the others, but God knows your heart, for what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have... Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, 
If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. So, what does the Bible have to say about money and riches elsewhere? What I want to do is give you 10 Bible verses with really a little, almost zero commentary between them, but just 10 Bible passages that indicate pretty clearly what the Bible says about money, wealth, and riches. And taking these 10 together, we're not going to have the whole counsel of God on money, wealth, and riches because it's a topic the Bible talks about a lot, but we'll have the beginning of a pretty good Bible theology on money, wealth, and riches. So let's start with Hebrews 13 verse 5, which says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 12. Solomon, writing this, who was incredibly rich, says, The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too, too is futile. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. In other words, I think Solomon is saying that great wealth brings... Um, Klingons and clingers and hangers-on and entourages trying to nibble into that wealth. And it also brings the kind of stress that can rob you of sleep if you're not careful. First Timothy 6, 6-10, through 10, Paul writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And I will point out there that the passage says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, not the root of all evil, which is how most people know that passage. The love of money is not the root of all evil, but it is the root of many, many different kinds of evil. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19 As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So what does Paul tell the rich to do? He tells them not to be haughty or arrogant, but to give, not necessarily tithing, although I think that's part of it, but he's talking about giving giving to other people, to take care of people, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And in doing that, they are investing their money eternally in heaven. So it's a good thing. Proverbs 22.1 a good name is to be chosen over great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. 
Luke 3.14, some soldiers were questioning John the Baptist. What should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. That's good counsel to almost all of us, not just soldiers. Mark 8.36, Jesus asked, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Proverbs 11.4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Finally, one more, Proverbs 38-9, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. A lot of wisdom in that passage, and a lot of wisdom in the passages we've read today. May you take these passages, and may I take these passages, and live them out to their fullest, not merely knowing the word, but following it. So, let's get into the Word of God for the rest of our readings, beginning with Exodus chapter 13, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. The Lord spoke to Moses, Consecrate every firstborn male to me, the firstborn from every womb among the Israelites, both man and domestic animal. It is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day when you came out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, for the Lord brought you out of here by the strength of his hand. Nothing leavened may be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hethites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers that he would give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you must carry out this ceremony in this month. For seven days you must eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there is to be a festival to the Lord. Unleavened bread is to be eaten for those seven days. Nothing leavened may be found among you, and no yeast may be found among you in all your territory. On that day explain to your son, This is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Let it serve as a sign for you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead, so that the Lord's instruction may be in your mouth. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand. Keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, you are to present to the Lord every firstborn male of the womb. All firstborn offspring of the livestock you own that are males will be the Lord's. You must redeem every firstborn of a donkey with a flock animal. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. However, you must redeem every firstborn among your sons. In the future, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, By the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of humans and the firstborn of livestock. That is why I sacrifice to the Lord all the firstborn of the womb that are males, but I redeem all the firstborn of my sons. So let it be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead, for the Lord brought us out of Egypt by the strength of his hand. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said, The people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. 
So he led the people around toward the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness, and the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath, saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. They set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Then the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. Job chapter 31 verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look at a young woman? For what portion would I have from God above or what inheritance from the Almighty on high? Doesn't disaster come to the unjust and misfortune to evildoers? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? If I've walked in falsehood or my foot is rushed to deceit, let God weigh me on accurate scales and he will recognize my integrity. If my step is turned from the way, my heart has followed my eyes or impurity has stained my hands. Let someone else eat what I have sown and let my crops be uprooted. If my heart has gone astray over a woman or I have lurked at my neighbor's door, let my own wife grind grain for another man or let other men sleep with her, for that would be a disgrace. It would be an iniquity-deserving punishment, for it is a fire that consumes down to Abaddon. It would destroy my entire harvest. If I have dismissed the case of my male or female servants when they made a complaint against me, What could I do when God stands up to judge? How should I answer him when he calls me to account? Did not the one who made me in the womb also make them? Did not the same God form us both in the womb? If I have refused the wishes of the poor or let the widow's eyes go blind, if I have eaten my few crumbs alone without letting the fatherless eat any of it, for from my youth I raised him as his father, and since the day I was born I guided the widow, if I have seen anyone dying for lack of clothing or a needy person without a cloak, if he did not bless me while warming himself with the fleece from my sheep, if I ever Cast my vote against a fatherless child when I saw that I had support in the city gate. Then let my shoulder blade fall from my back and my arm be pulled from its socket. For disaster from God terrifies me, and because of his majesty I could not do these things. If I placed my confidence in gold or called fine gold my trust, if I have rejoiced because my wealth is greater, because my own hand has required so much, if I have gazed at the sun when it was shining or at the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and I threw them a kiss, this would also be an iniquity deserving punishment, for I would have denied God above. Have I rejoiced over my enemy's distress or become excited when trouble came his way? I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life with a curse. Haven't the members of my household said, Who is there there who has not had enough to eat at Job's table? No stranger had to spend the night on the street, for I opened my door to the traveler. Have I covered my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I greatly feared the crowds and because the contempt of the clans terrified me, so I grew silent and would not go outside? If only I had someone to hear my case. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. 
Let my opponent compose his indictment. I would surely carry it on my shoulder and wear it like a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. I would approach him like a prince. If my land cries out against me and its furrows join in weeping, if I have consumed its produce without payment or shown contempt for its tenants, then let the thorns grow instead of wheat and stinkwood instead of barley. The words of Job are concluded. Second Corinthians chapter 1 verse 1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you will also share in the comfort. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a terrible death and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again while you join in helping us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. Indeed, this is our boast. The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. For we are writing nothing to you other than what you can read and also understand. I hope you will understand completely, just as you have partially understood us, that we are your reason for pride, just as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Because of this confidence, I plan to come to you at first so that you could have a second benefit and visit you on my way to Macedonia, and then come to you again from Macedonia and be helped by you on my journey to Judea. Now, when I planned this, was I of two minds, or what I planned, do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him it is always yes. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. Now it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. He has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. I call on God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. I do not mean that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand firm in your faith. Amen. 
And brothers and sisters, may the word of God today help you and I both to stand firm in our faith by the power of Jesus and the strengthening of his word. Good day to you and Godspeed.